Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your goodness to us. For, for the, we, we were talking about the throne, and it's interesting to me because you don't have to have a throne to rule. You spoke the, the worlds into being, but you have established a throne, and we find it in Scripture, and it's very real, and it is a place where angels gather and where we go, we gather and we focus. Over and over again, we talk about the Father who is in heaven, one who looks down uh, from heaven, his eyes run to and fro over the earth to see uh, us, and that it's a very clear picture that we have God who is on the throne, and we have access to that throne, and uh, we want to comply as much as we can with your will and to be pleasing to you. So help us to do that. Pray for this time, this morning, this study, that you would open our hearts as we finish up this salutation, uh, looking at just this very brief comment, that a uh, brief statement or two that Paul makes to Titus. Thank you for your goodness to us, and thank you for this time and the privilege that we have to open your precious word. And I pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Okay. Well, as you see this little ribbon hanging down here, when I have my quiet time in the morning on the bed, the cat is just sitting there and thinking he'll come down and play with that thing and interrupt my very frequently. They like to play with that thing. So, anyway, whatever that means, it means. Here we are with Titus chapter. One and we're looking at verses one through four, and I'm going to read it to you. And we are in the second half of that, not really a half, but the second part of that verse now. The first part I had to do with the author, that is Paul, and uh, his his uh, his work, his his uh, reality of, of his of his ministry. And I'll read those verses to you, and then we'll look at the audience. Uh, Paul, in introducing himself as the author, Paul, a bondservant that is a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, that apostleship was for three things there. It was for the faith, the salvation, and the growth of those that are chosen of God, the knowledge of the truth, which is sanctification, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, that is the future hope of the eternal life, which God who cannot lie has promised long ages ago that eternal life and that promise is at the proper time manifested even in his word in the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. That's a mouthful. We've already gone through that. We've talked about that ministry that was entrusted to Paul, that giving of his the word of God through him and for the saints. The second half, not the audience, I mean not the author, but the audience is the the specific audience there directed them initially is to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Uh, Titus, um, Paul, if you look at Paul's ministry, we usually divide it up into four missionary journeys. And that's kind of, those are sort of like timelines for us. We kind of follow it. But for the standpoint of us looking at uh, his writing to Titus, uh, it's probably better to divide it up between the two imprisonments. The first imprisonment took place at the, uh, the end of the third missionary journey. The fourth missionary journey when it was captured in Jerusalem and taken to Rome. And Acts gives us a kind of concluding part of that when he is he's, he's had under house arrest and then he's released. And then there is some ministry that takes place in which Paul uh, has been working with the Macedonian uh, churches 
and uh, dealing with them. And it was in that time that we believe that he wrote to Titus, probably from the church in Corinth, which he was involved in. And uh, he, was, he was involved with Titus at, uh, in Crete, and he's wanting Titus to stay in Crete and minister. And so it's be between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment, which is covered, we've just finished looking at that in 2 Timothy, when Paul writes from prison, saying he doesn't have much longer to live, he's asking Timothy to hurry up and come and try to see him. And uh, so anyway, in this kind of interim between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment is when I think that uh, Paul writes to Titus and he's asking him in this letter to set things in order in Crete and uh, to do take care of some things that need to be done. It's interesting in my thinking to notice sort of the similarity between uh, the ministry of Paul to Titus and his ministry to Timothy. They are both similar in one respect, and that is that uh, both of them were discipled by Paul, and they are mentioned. Uh, Paul seemingly, and we'll get to that in Titus in a moment, seemingly was instrumental in leading both of them to faith and helping them to grow. Uh, both were discipled by Paul. Uh, both worked with Paul in the ministry, were involved in the ministry. Uh, both uh, had inspired letters written to them by Paul, directing them in areas of ministry, and both were entrusted with serious responsibilities by Paul, which to me, now see, I passed for church. We'll have a, a business meeting today. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about what the church is going to be doing down the line. That's, that's an important thing. I'm... Uh, I don't have anybody that I know of that can come walking in the door and say, I'm here to take over now. But yet God raises up people within the church, people that can be involved in ministry. And, and uh, we, God is doing that. I've been very encouraged with that. I really have been very encouraged with that. Uh, I was talking to Bruce Walker. He's getting ready to go to California. And uh, we were talking about the, we were talking about Grace Advance and other things. And he's giving me some information about that. But anyway, um, Paul is... is a, is poured his life out in some of these people. And there is some fruit and ministry that is developing out of that. And that's, that's kind of what we want to be doing. We want to be pouring our life, not only just in, in a public ministry like this, but also in private lives, uh, not only in, in the life where we have elders and deacons, but also our kids and those that were in Sunday school class and those that we work with, we want to have an influence in them and God will use that in our lives. So this is important. Paul is writing to Titus, who is one of those instruments that is um, to be used and that uh, Paul has a lot of faith in Titus. But the fact that he is entrusting into Titus' hands to set things in order and to appoint elders in the cities of Crete, the churches of Crete, which is a big island over 100 miles long and the Mediterranean, one of the larger ones. Um, that says a lot about the confidence that Paul had in Titus, and that says a lot about the ministry of Titus. One of the things that I want to point out, which I think is very instrumental, a lot of people kind of ignore it, but I think it's very instrumental, and that is that Titus, unlike Timothy, was a Gentile. And Titus had not been circumcised, and um, I think that created in my opinion, a little bit of a shadow over him from the Jewish community 
it's not that they were just deliberately proud and arrogant, but if you're raised in that fundamental Jewish core and you have that that uh, commitment to the bone, it's easy to think that that is kind of sets you on a level a little bit higher. And I think that's one of the big reasons why Galatians tells us there was a, the, the uh, first the first Jerusalem council is recorded in Acts, but Titus is not mentioned, but he, we know he was there because he's mentioned in Galatians. He was, he was invited to that meeting and he was accepted by the believers in that meeting in the first Jerusalem council. He was accepted even though he had not been circumcised and he was not forced to be circumcised, as one of Paul says. So here is this Gentile who has a position as elder, really, because he is, he is going to be appointing elders in other churches. So he has to have a very important church position and he's a Gentile, and so uh, that's in, that's kind of an encouragement, I guess, to us who are Gentiles, that here is this Gentile, and he excelled in the things, in the service and the ministry of, of the gospel to the point that Paul was willing to trust some pretty significant responsibilities into his hand. He felt him faithful. Uh, in fact, he calls him, he, he uses terminology that talks about him as being a faithful brother and a steward and so on and so forth. And so he has a lot of faith in Titus, and so he's entrusting a lot to him. Now we come to this passage, and we see here at the beginning of this, this statement here, the, the audience is addressed to Titus. And um, notice what he says about him. He calls him my true child in the common faith. I've read over that thing many times and just what he's saying is he's he's uh, one that i've discipled and led him to faith but as he as i've been reading that and particularly this morning as i was going back over this verse again it began to stand out to me in an interesting way that he calls him my true child that word true there means that here is one who is legitimately born he's a genuine child why would Paul say that? If he's a child, he's a child of faith. I think he's saying that just to emphasize the fact that though he is, here is this Gentile, but he is absolutely, genuinely, 100% the real article. He is a real, in fact, he, he goes on to say in the common faith there, and that, that's an interesting word. It, the, uh, it's, it has to do, sometimes we talk about things in the ministry as being uncommon. These things are uncommon, and these things are set apart for God. And what he's saying here is that this guy is really genuine. He's really set aside in the faith. Uh, he's 100% he's sterling. And uh, I have been instrumental in his life. Um, and so he's real. And he's real to handle the faith. Not just the faith that's handed down to the saints, the doctrine, but also in, in discipling and leading people to faith in the salvation that uh, he has accepted as a Gentile and has embraced his life and it dominates his life. He is real and he's my instrument and I'm putting him here and I'm writing this letter to let you know, uh, Titus, that I accept you completely and I am very excited about who you are and, and what you are doing. Now, I want to just take a moment to digress and that is um, that when we say a genuine child, you got to understand that there are people who carry 
uh, a belief system in Jesus that are not necessarily genuine followers of Christ. They may be religious. They may be believers uh, in the sense, and, and we were talking about in Sunday school, that there are believers in John's gospel, that Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. And he knew that their heart was, was even though they were believers, and in the case of Simon Magus, he was in, receiving the church and baptized, but turned out he was not a genuine follower of Christ. And just to say that a person is a believer is not in itself necessarily evidence that he is a genuine believer. You've heard me talk about the parable of the sower, and I think the reason that is such, that has really become a major focus in my life because the parable of the sower is like a barometer or a thermometer that helps us evaluate our faith. How do we know that our faith is genuine? And how do we know it's the saving faith? Well, here's Jesus and he talks about this, the sower goes out and sows uh, on four kinds of soil. There's a hard ground, there's the rocky shallow ground, there is the ground in which there are thieves and, and uh, thorns that grow up. And then there's the good ground where there's, there, there's a fruit. And that is parallel with four kinds of people. The first kind of person is a person who has a hard heart. And we all know them. We've talked about them. I, I gave a very good friend of mine that worked the other day a card to invite him to the Bible study. And I said, you ought, you ought to come to this, Nathan. It's a good study. And he looked at it and handed it back to me. and said, no, I'm not going to come. Well, he's got a hard heart. It's not, I don't take it personally, but it's just got a hard heart. And I've had a hard heart many times. And probably you, I'm certain you have too. And, uh, but the second one is the one that is a kind of a, a, a rocky soil where it receives the gospel even with joy. And yet when persecution comes or hard times come, these person, people bail out and walk away from the faith. They were. They looked real at first, and sometimes we have people. We've had people in this church that have made all kinds of exciting responses, and then all of a sudden you'll never see, never see them again. They're gone, and their life is completely different. That happens. That's the second kind of faith, and so you need to evaluate, evaluate yourself and ask you what is it that will knock you out of the saddle. The third uh, soil is the soil in which there is weeds, worries, riches, wealth. They grow up, and they choke. The gospel so that the gospel is not fruitful it's not that they abandon the faith they said it doesn't produce any kind of fruit that's the one that bothers me the most because i can see that you know i have a job now i'm making money i have more money than i've had in a long time actually and uh, so i can do things with it and it's easy for that do you see to crowd out my passion for the lord and also the you know take a cruise or go do this or go do that and uh, put this on the back burner but this thing I'm putting on the back burner is my life. You see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's it's what I'm saying is that you can evaluate your life by these four responses. And then the last, of course, is the good soil that bears fruit, uh, 10, 100, 100 fold, whatever. And so this, this, this statement tells us that we, just because we say we believe, doesn't necessarily mean that our faith is a saving faith. There are lots of people who believe. Um, I remember uh howard luck telling me that when he was first leaving church one time before he'd given his life to christ he was he was uh going out the door and one of the guys said do you do you believe the gospel he said yeah i believe it and he said well the demons believe and shut up but they're not saved and he said well that hit me like a ton of brooks of bricks and i began went home and started thinking about that and finally got my bible and started reading and gave my life to christ uh it, it's true so here is this statement 
Paul is writing Titus, and the first thing he's talking about in so far as his, the reality of his commitment to Christ is that he's a true child in the common faith, the, the genuine, the, the, the real faith that we have. He's a true child. And Titus was instrumental in Paul. There's many passages where Paul says that he was comforted with the ministry of Titus uh, by his coming, um, that um, he had seen uh, Titus, who is very, he's a partner, he's a fellow worker among you, and he's been involved in these things. So Titus is, a, is an instrument that God has been using and is encouraging Paul in his ministry. Now I want to look at the second half of that text, and we don't have a lot of time, but that is the result of this. In, and it's, it's very simple. And yes, I look at it and I said, now what are we going to say about that? And about the other thing you can say is just to kind of slow down and see what he's saying. He says this. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's talk about grace for just a minute. I know you know what it means, but let's just talk about it. it it's a way of talking about God's open hand of giving. It is an unmerited uh, favor that he gives to us. He gives uh, to those of us who are helplessly, I guess, entrenched in our sin or whatever. If you, if you know, one of my favorite passages is in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, and you, you might look at verse 4 in Ephesians 2, he says, uh, God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful statement about our God. He's merciful. And his mercy is declared to be abundant. He is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. Not just love, but love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now watch this. If we were dead in our transgressions, dead people can't do anything about their dead condition. We were hopelessly lost. We were hopelessly in rebellion. We were assigned already under judgment for eternal separation and damnation. But because God is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, not after, but while we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And then he has a little parenthetical statement there, by grace you have been saved. So this is God's grace being poured out on us who are dead in our trespasses and sins, dead in our rebellion against him. We are dead. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Let me just back up for a minute. Notice, first of all, he made us alive together, together with Christ. Notice, second of all, um, he raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. He did that so that in the ages to come, he might show not just the riches, but the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, and that grace is, is through faith. That faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So that we are 
objects of this abounding grace that God has poured out. It's God's Christ's riches, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's his pouring out on us the things that we don't deserve, giving us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, we, were, we were lost and we were undone. Um, Ephesians 1, 6 says that these things are to be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Galatians 1, 15 says that Paul was set apart even from his mother's womb and called uh, him through the grace of uh, that he was pleased to reveal his son through Paul. This is this is all ministry of grace that is poured out to us. Um, when Paul was struggling with the thorn of the flesh, uh, he made a statement. He said, "My that the Lord said when he asked him to have it removed, he said, no, I'm going to leave it there. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, he said that when you go through this pressure, my grace is going to be sufficient for you so that my power will be perfected and utilized and become effective and visible through your weakness. And it's my grace that is providing that. It's my grace that's doing that through you. So grace is a good word. I was reading from, and I think it was, we, it might have been the, I don't know for sure, I should have written it down, I didn't, but anyway, it says this about grace. It says the word grace is probably the greatest word in the New Testament, greater even than the word love. For grace is love in action and therefore includes it. Speaking of the use of the word of the Greek word grace, which is charis in classical Greek, Trench has this to say. He says, quote, this is synonyms of the New Testament has this to say. It is hardly too much to say that the Greek mind has in no word uttered itself and all that was in its heart more distinctly than in this. In other words, all that the Greeks were and loved and exemplified in their art, in their literature, and their thought lies embedded in that word charis. We can take Trench's definition or Trench's words and substitute the word God and say, it is harder too much to say that God has in no word uttered himself and all that is in his heart more than in this word grace. The pagan Greek Greece, in pagan Greece, the word referred to, among other things, to a favor done by one Greek to another out of a spontaneous generosity of his heart without hope of reward. Of course, this favor was always done to a friend and not to an enemy. But when the word is used in the New Testament, it takes on an infinite leap forward and acquires an additional meaning which it never had in pagan Greece. For this favor was done by God at the cross not to one who loved him, but to those who hated him, even to us who were dead in trespasses and sins and were helpless and had no, no response. The grace here referred to uh, is sanctifying grace, grace that set, sets us apart and uh, sets us apart for God and then works in our heart to bring us to himself. That's the word grace. Now, the second word, word peace, uh, is used in a simple sense to speak of um, the absence of war, if you will. Christ came, it says, not to bring peace, but a sword. He didn't come to just get everybody together so that we would feel good, but his coming is going to create division. Uh, the state of tranquility between otherwise hostile parties, us, were justified by faith. And because of that, we now have, which we didn't have before, we now have peace with God. There is that connection that that barrier has been removed the wall of petition has been broken down we have that peace with god 
Uh, the word is used at times as part of God's name. For example, he's called the God of peace. May a God of peace be with you because God is the one that has worked in us to make us, bring us into his relationship so that we're at peace with him. It's used in salutations like our text, peace be with you, or uh, speaks of well-being and tranquility, uh, best wishes, or peace be with you. And it's, it's just, a, it's a good way of giving a salutation. And so these two words kind of work together. There's this peace, and there is this uh, issue of well-being or tranquility that uh, the writer is conveying. In Philippians, one of the passages that I thought about and I wanted to bring your attention to where we have this word peace, Philippians talks about our anxiety. And you probably have things that you're anxious about. And I know that I have things that I'm anxious about. And I pray for things. And I honestly feel like sometimes that God is not listening to my prayers when I pray about specific things that I really want to see him do and he's not listening and it's easy to be anxious but here is what he says Philippians 4 says be anxious for nothing the, the word nothing there means zero <laughs> be anxious for nothing but in everything that's the opposite of nothing in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and in the midst of that anxiety, he says, and the peace of God, <laughs> which surpasses all comprehension, which is beyond understanding, which does not make sense. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We experience that. I think most of you, I asked some of you to pray for the camp, Camp Good News. We were going through a financial situation. We have a couple of you guys there that are really sharp businessmen. And one of them is taking over the finances because as a young, young, young man has been doing it. He studied for CPA and he's good. He just has because he's been so busy not been able to keep current with other things. So this guy's taking that book. He he and his wife spent seven hours the other night, other day, going through all the books and getting everything out. So they know where every penny is and everything is going on. And they put a lot of work in that seven hours one day and two of the hours the next day. This is what you call commitment. You do that. You do that for something, some ministry like that. And uh but he, he, pointed, he sent us a text, sent it to me and sent it to others saying, I can see that we're going to run out of money. Uh, that the rate we're going, we've been digging into the general fund. We've not been replacing that. And we're going to be out of funds probably by the end, by the middle of November, maybe the 1st of December. And uh, we need to do something about that. And he said, I would suggest you call a meeting. So I did call a meeting. We all came together. And uh, I asked us, uh, first of all, I read the verses you sent to me, Psalm 37. Is that right? It was Psalm 37, I think it was. And uh, read that. It was a good, good passage. And in there, it says that God is the one that's in charge. He's on the throne, and we come before him, and he's our supplier and one that meets our needs. And then we had a time of prayer, and we went around, everybody prayed. And that really did a lot to calm the anxiety and to calm us down. And it really turned the meeting around, and we began to look at what we had. We looked at the, the donations of people that are going to be giving and stuff, and it turns out we think we're going to be pretty well through the end of the year. And so he is saying, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to write out a budget for next year now, and we're going to decide what we need each month to keep current with our, with our funds and the whole of money. We have insurance. That, that wasn't included in the bill. We got insurance. We got to pay through. 
So you know, that makes good sense, doesn't it? To see your bills, to see your expenses, and see those things, and what we got each month, and uh, so we can at least have something to pray about, some kind of goal to aim for, so we know what we are, where we are financially. Well, that's that's the value. I'm just talking about that. That's the value of prayer that you can pray about those things in the peace of God. I would even say maybe even the wisdom of God can guard your hearts and minds. That is separate set around your heart a military garrison, which is what he's saying that, that, that praying does to your heart, turns that anxiety around. And I know what it means to be anxious, and I know you know what it means to be anxious. Um, we're talking about our country. We pray for our country. Uh, we talk about the, our kids and our health and the safety of, of our our kids and or the situation in our family or we, we we very likely may be seeing riots and stuff like that it's a very possible scenario a lot of people are talking about that and it's possible that when i look at the bible it very likely could be we could see that kind of thing it's easy to worry about these things and be anxious for things reading between the lines don't read between the lines go to prayer and bring these things before god because he is on the throne he is charged and he guards our hearts and minds. Finally, brethren, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And um, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So grace and peace. Uh, I'm going to have to leave that. I have more I want to say about it, but um, it's, it's uh, the, Paul says in Romans 8, he says, the mindset on the flesh, uh, people that set their mind on the flesh, it's death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. When we live with the things of the flesh, when we pursue the things of the flesh, when we pursue the ways of the world, it destroys our relationship with God because that's what we are living for. He says, instead of doing that, set your mind on the things of the spirit, pursue the things of the spirit. And out of that life, will, out of your relationship will come life and peace. That's a wonderful promise, life and peace. And peace. So grace and peace, and one other thing here, remember, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but grace always precedes peace. You can't have the peace of God unless you are embracing his grace and his grace is operative in your relationship. You need the grace of God working in your life in order to have this peace. The uh, phrase over and over again, that phrase, by the way, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ appears, that exact same phrase appears nine times in Paul's epistles. Uh, there are three others that it appears with a slight alteration. One of them adds the word mercy, one of them adds the word knowledge, but there are three other places there. And then there are 18 passages in all where you have Christ in the immediate context of all this grace and peace that comes, it all comes from Christ. And if I go through the New Testament and I find a lot of these places where grace and peace are mentioned, not in the same order, but there you find this very interesting scenario that kind of points up to me the chain of command. I think it's very interesting. There is a chain of command, by the way, in the Godhead. I don't know if you realize, realize that, but there is. And it doesn't mean God the Father is better than God the Son, and God the Son is better than the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that at all. They're all equal, but they are voluntarily working together. 
to perform this work, which has been planned eons before even the foundation of the world. So let me just read a couple of verses. Ephesians 1.26 talks about grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 6.23, grace, uh, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 2, and 3, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ here in Colossians, grace to you and peace from God the Father. We give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Philemons 1, 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1, 1 talks about Paul, Savanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Second Thessalonians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord and our Lord and Jesus Christ our Lord. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. James 1, 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 1 and 2 talks about according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 John 1, 3 talks about our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. 2 John 1, 3 talks about from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And finally, Revelation talks about the John's and seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. So here you have in all of these places, almost all of them talk about the ministry coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's just a happenstance. I think there is a, an order in, in the, the chain of command and that the ministry, and that's encouraging to me because we so often think that God the Father is a tyrant and angry and his anger is seething at us, but then here comes his son who appeases his anger and stuff. But actually the ministry of the gospel of the grace comes from God the Father as much as it does from the Son. God the Father loves us, and he has sent his Son to pay for our sin, and he is interested in us, he cares for us, and he loves us, and uh, he is, he is, uh, he treats us a whole lot better than we deserve. And we're very thankful, we're very blessed. So this is Paul's letter to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, who is our Savior. That's a nice thought. He is our Savior. He is the one who delivers us. All right, well, that's, we'll stop at that. That's a good word, isn't it? Grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy um, and for your peace and for your love. Um, I'm thinking about, as I sit there in the bed, reading my Bible, reading about these profound things and the cats over there playing with this ribbon that comes out of my Bible and there's this, this, this distraction. And yet at the same time, I'm looking at these majestic truths that are just so staggering. And they're real. That's what's so hard. These are real things. And I am a recipient of this massive security and this wonderful, wonderful blessing. These blessings that have been overflowing to me. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for your love. And thank you for your care for me while I was dead. And trespasses and sin. Lord, if there are those here this morning, as probably there are, that, that have never really, they're believers, but they don't really know you. I pray for each heart here 
you'll help us to surrender our lives to you. Those listening over the the uh, the airways by way of Zoom or whatever, they may be religious. That's not going to get them into heaven. They'll go to hell as religious people. I pray for their hearts. I pray that you'd be speaking to their hearts and helping them to come to know you as their Lord and Savior, and that they would receive the ministry of your Son, who is the Savior, and embrace him and serve him and live for him and put him first. Help me to do that. I've been talking to others. Help me to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Thanksgiving. Amen.